0: Does everyone have the handouts? I think it, our goal is to finish the nine marks one, and then go to the statement of faith and cover as much as we can in the time that we have, around 10:15. So what is that? 45 minutes from now, we plan to uh, finish this part, and then the elders are going to go to different tables. We got four tables, we got four elders, it works out. So we will we'll go to different tables, and people will just sort of we, we're going to have everyone kind of just share briefly their testimony, uh, just kind of like a. Uh, sort of a succinct kind of how you came to know the Lord uh, testimony, and uh, then we will take a brief question or two if there's any last questions. Then we'll pray together, and then uh, we'll be we'll be done hopefully ten thirty, if that if that makes sense. So
1: question or two at the table or up here?
0: Yeah, I think at the table. At the table. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> All right. So we're going to jump back into nine marks. We are at number five evangelism. Let me let me um, just read this. Uh, Description here. Number five, biblical understanding of evangelism. The way we evangelize speaks volumes about how we understand conversion and further what we understand about the good news. If we believe that people are essentially good and are seeking Jesus, we evangelize using half truths and tend to elicit false conversions. When we present a watered down gospel, we end up with a watered down church. We need to be faithful to present the full gospel, the good news with the bad news and leave the results ultimately to God. Obviously, a true born-again Christian is going to have a love and concern for the lost. That is inherent in being a Christian. You you cannot be a genuine born-again Christian and be apathetic about lost people. Just, you, you, it's just not possible. If we have tasted what we have in Christ, we have to want other people to taste it as well. So evangelism is just part of being a Christian. Um, now, it's going to look different in different places for different people, but the, the desire to pray for and reach out to, I mean, think particularly, lost people in our family are like, They should be people particularly on our mind. If you have children who are not believers, which uh, I certainly do, uh, mine are young, uh, that should be a major burden for for us in our lives. People we work with, people we're in a dorm room with, apartment with, um, extended family, people we work with, those should be people we are particularly aware of and concerned for, and uh, then it it moves out from there to other people that we might run into or see uh, throughout the day. So thoughts on the importance of that.
1: I just want to make make a point, and it kind of relates to some other stuff we've said. You are not responsible for the conversion of anyone. Like, so don't bear that burden. Your responsibility is to present the gospel clearly. Um, try to be as humble, as gracious, as kind as you can. But you get the truth to the to the person, and the Holy Spirit will work through that truth in the person. Like, it's not our responsibility to convert anyone to. Um, when we talk about, you know, being a soul winner, leading people to Jesus, like the, the right way to understand that is, you know, we're preaching the gospel, we're being faithful to share it. Um, and by God's grace, we're there when that person is awakened to their sin and their need for Christ and they trust Christ. But it's not your responsibility to produce that. It's the Holy Spirit's role to do that. It's our responsibility to present the gospel clearly and to call for repentance and faith. So if if you have presented the gospel clearly and you haven't seen somebody trusting Christ, you have not failed. Go to sleep well at night and pray that God will convert, but you have not failed. You have done exactly what God calls you to do.
0: All right, number, uh, let's flip to the back of the page. <clears throat> We're going to skip down to verses, uh, not verses, uh, numbers, not eight and nine. <clears throat> number eight, a concern for biblical discipleship and growth. We need to recover true discipleship, uh, discipleship that causes Christians to live lives of increasing holiness. The emphasis on growth needs to be directed at holiness rather than membership. Uh, true discipleship producing strong, committed Christians will present a clear witness to the world. And we've already covered a lot of these things. Discipleship should be just what we are about. Uh Christians who have been around for a while, older Christians should be pouring into younger Christians, um, uh, not to embarrass, but Robin met just uh, like this past week with some of the moms at our church, and uh, having someone who's raised four children who are all wonderful, uh, I want to call them kids, but now they're, they're adults now, young adults, um, just for, for Robin to be able to sit down at, uh, was it Dairy Queen? Was that Where all good things happen at Dairy Queen. They sat down with maybe four or so of the moms at the church. And they were just asking her questions and she was able to talk about some of her experience raising these four children. And my wife loved it. She came home and she was like, this was great. That's the kind of stuff we're talking about. We're, we're, we're Pauls and Timothys, right? And, and seeing uh, we as younger, you know, we... we uh, we should all have a Paul. We should all have a Timothy. You know, so we so we we should all have someone we look up to that we're following, uh, who's kind of ahead of us in our Christian life, and then people who are behind us, hopefully following as we follow those other examples. And so it should be those 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 should be normal relationships. And just
2: math wise, you get multiplication rather than addition. Then we all want to be about evangelism. We have to, but discipleship is going to be those moms are going to disciple their kids. Those kids are going to disciple many, and you see and uh, more people come to love and know Christ through that kind of discipleship.
0: Number nine here, the last of the nine marks. Biblical church leadership. Until recent times, almost all Protestants agreed that in church government there should be a plurality of elders, which means that there should be an office of elder and not merely one or more pastors in positions of leadership. This is a biblical and practical model that has uh, fallen out of favor in, in modern times turn to first Timothy chapter 3 first Timothy chapter 3 and Scott can you just read 1 through 13 because you're, you're going to hear about overseers which is the same as an elder and it's the same as a pastor and in, in the New Testament the word overseer is a synonym, essentially, for the word elder and the word pastor. So just keep that
3: in mind as we read 3, 1 through First 1 Timothy 3, uh, starting in verse 1, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well
0: It used to be, believe it or not, it used to be normal for Baptist churches to have both a plurality of elders and deacons in every church. That was the, that was the normal way it was, again, over 100 years ago. I don't know what happened around the 1900 turn of the century, but for, for one reason or another, amongst Baptist churches, elders basically vanished from Baptist churches for, for the better part of 100 years, which is amazing. And what you ended up having was this, and this is still true today of a lot of Baptist churches. I'm not, again, I'm not trying to be harsh. But what you typically have is you have one pastor who is the elder, and then you have a group of deacons who have uh, authority in terms of voting on major decisions that the church has. Now, I'm not trying to be a jerk, not trying to be mean. Biblically, that is a faulty understanding of the two of the two offices. In the New Testament, you cannot find a single church that has only one elder pastor. You can't find one. Every single time elders are addressed, it's in the plural for every individual church. Titus 1, point, appoint elders plural in each city, in each church. And you have that in Acts, I think it's chapter 14. They appointed elders in every church. So elders is always plural. The Ephesian elders, remember at Miletus in Acts 20, he he brought all the elders. It sounds like a large group of men who came to who Paul speak to, so, spoke to. So, Elders are in the plural. They are pastors, elders, overseers, and we are the four elders here at the church. We are called to lead the church. The deacons, which we now have two deacons, Ian Webster and Zach Petty, who was helping us set up some stuff here and brought the he brought all the Chick-fil-A, so deacons are wonderful, are they not? They bring Chick-fil-A to this meeting. So uh, Zach and Ian are deacons. Deacons are not the ones who so much lead and vote. They are the ones that serve physical needs in particular. And so the elders are the ones sort of, put it this way, elders serve... By speaking, elders serve with their mouths, deacons serve with their hands. They serve by physically serving. And so to take some of the pressure off the elders, because if if I had to get the Chick-fil-A this morning, I wouldn't have been able to prepare the little bit extra I had this morning. So to take time to to, to give me that benefit, to give us that benefit, Zach, as a deacon brought the physical need part. And he's taking care of setting up camera and helping us get all this stuff ready. He's kind of our hands and feet getting stuff done. We are the ones that are trying to focus on the teaching part and the pray, also praying for these kinds of things. So they are to work as a team. It's not the Senate versus the House of Representatives. They are to work together as a team. And the elders lead, the deacons serve, and then the members ultimately together will vote on major issues at the church, like um, budgetary issues, some major decisions each year. Can I, so, yeah. can I say... <clears throat>
1: just jumping off that the elders are the biblically qualified leaders deacons are not deacons are not in an authoritative role in the church the reason why this is, sounds strange is because again like I'm not trying to like pick a fight here but in most baptist churches there's a blending of the office of elder and deacon yep pastors are yes they're supposed to teach but there's all this other stuff they're supposed to do and deacons who are supposed to serve also function in a pseudo-pastor role they're not supposed to be blended together they're supposed to be separate the Bible clearly speaks of them separately and we should practice the office separately Um, and so elders are the, the leaders, the teachers, the shepherds, deacons are the servants and there is not an authoritative element to the role of deacon now that's not saying a deacon who is really grounded in the word can't teach that's not saying that at all, but it is saying there is a difference between the two offices. Um, the the elder is the leadership, authority, shepherd. The deacon is the servant, um, and that that's just reflective of how Scripture presents it to us.
2: Can I just say one thing? About seven years, before we planted church, there was um, an, an el- one who would have completely believed in this that just told me, you're just not going to be, and he was very... Adam, he just said, you're just not going to be able to find elders. Like, you go ahead and try to plan a church, but you're not going to be able to find a plurality of elders. And then the Lord has graciously um, given us that. And, and I'm overwhelmed with his grace in being able to say that we have um, elders that I mean, I think people talk about deacons meetings or elders meetings sometimes in a uh, that it's not a great time, but I love any time that we get to be together. And I love these these men and the unity that we get to have. And, and I'm overwhelmed. I just, at North Avenue, how we've been able to see the Lord bring together men who, who love the Lord Jesus and want to serve and enjoy teaching. And, and by God's grace, God's gifted at teaching. So, thank you thank you guys for, I'm just, when I think back about what he said, and which is, I think, probably true
0: generally has not been true here. And on, on this point, you saw the qualifications for an elder in verses 1 through 7, and then you saw the qualifications for deacons and their wives in verses 8 to 13. Um, one of the only differences in qualification is that elders are required to be able to teach. Deacons are not required to be able to teach, which tells you something about the difference, right, in the role. So look at another verse here, First Timothy 5. It's the same book. And you can see here the idea of leadership or, or the word rule is used, verse 17. Let the elders who rule well, so there's a, there's, a, there's a leadership authority aspect, be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Um, let me also just mention while we're, while we're in this text, look at verse nineteen. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, so this goes back to our discipline theme, it's talking about elders who persist in, in sin. Rebuke them in the presence of all. I think that means you rebuke the elder in the presence of the whole church. This is a terrifying passage, uh, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do you know how tempting it would be for the leadership of the church to show favoritism to one another? I mean, they're just like, well, we don't want to do that. No, no, no. No prejudging, no prejudicial stuff, no favoritism. It has to be done by the book. It, ha- it has to be done by the book. And um, so that- that's another text on I that I want to say one more. Subject. I, I know yeah. we
1: got, but... Look at verse 22, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Like, yes, I'm an elder here now, but how long was I a member before you guys even wanted to pursue that process with me? Then I'm, I'm, I'm thankful for their patience in this. Um, if there's something the church has struggled with historically, it's the moment someone looks like they have a gift, throw them in a position of leadership. No, you've got to be able to prove that you are at least somewhat faithful in what has already been looked at in chapter 3. Um, and so they diligently vetted me. Um, and, you know, but I, I am so thankful for that um, because you showed a commitment to, to the good of this church that you're not going to put, you're not going to bring on board with you guys uh, someone that you don't absolutely trust and know that you can labor side by side with. That you don't have to be f- f- fretting every, every time I get, was he going to say, is he going to say this? Or is he gonna, you don't, like, we don't, I don't worry about that with you guys. And you, by God's grace, you don't worry about that with me. But like, that's the point in this. If you go too quickly, you don't know somebody well enough to, to, to truly trust them with the care of God's flock. And that's a responsibility I take huge, um, you know, to be able to be up here with you guys and be a part of this. But you guys, I think, demonstrated verse 22 very, very well in this. Um, and that's something we have to stay committed to as a church. It is okay to take your time in bringing somebody into any position of influence in a church. You want to be sure that they are mature, they can handle it, and that they actually meet the qualifications, and they actually want to pursue that in the church.
0: And the reason Paul gives us there in verse 24 the sins of some people are conspicuous, obvious, going before them to judgment, mm-hmm. but the sins of others appear later.
1: Yeah.
0: So, also, so also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. So that's that's the reason to take time with these things. Any last thoughts before we shift to the statement of faith? All right, let's go to the statement of faith. We, I would like to linger on the, the five or so, I think it's five theological distinctives but we will also mention. We'll try to cover as much as we can in the time that we have here. Um, so as we get into this, I want to. You might
1: notice we have kind of tiers or layers here. Um, in order to be a member of North Avenue Church, this is good. Um, the statement of basic beliefs, which I think's on. I don't know. I've got a different handout than you guys do, um, but the statement of basic beliefs you know, as it says, this is the most foundational beliefs of Christian orth- this is what you have to believe to be a Christian, right? okay? And if, if you agree to that, that statement, to those basic Christian truths, then, you know, that's where, hey, come on in. Come on in. Be a part of what God's doing here. We want to love you, welcome you in. We want you to be a part of us. We want God to use you in our lives God to use us in your lives. Um, but after that, as a church, like we're going to see, we, we have things that as at North Avenue, we are convinced Scripture leads us to pursue certain um, distinctive, certain paths, and not others that will distinguish us from other churches um, and other Christian groups. And so, the first part is, you know, if, if you get the gospel and you get, you know, basic Christianity, yes, you are welcome to be here. We we don't demand that you have you dot every i, cross every t, like on the sovereignty of God, like we do, um, and some stuff like that. But we are going to go a certain way as a church. Um, and so, yes, we agree on the core issues. But as a church, it's right for us to say we also believe Scripture leads us to do church a certain way, preach a certain way, emphasize certain things as opposed to other things. Does that make That's sense? That's a great yeah. point. Thank
0: you for, for distinguishing that. Scott, can you start with reading through the Statement of Basic Beliefs at the bottom of the first
3: page? Okay, bottom first page, Statement of Basic Beliefs. The gospel is the hope of the world. As we read the scriptures, we see the overarching themes of God's providence, power, and provision to reconcile mankind and the created world to himself through the person and work of Jesus Christ. In light of this, we aim to be explicitly gospel-centered in all that we preach, teach, and practice. We believe the scriptures are true, authoritative, and sufficient. There is only one true God, creator of heaven and earth, who eternally exists in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We believe all things exist for the glory of God. We believe all humanity, Christ excluded, is sinful by both birth and action. We believe the deserved penalty for sin is physical and spiritual death. We believe Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God, was born of a virgin, and is both fully God and fully human. We believe Jesus Christ died as the sacrificial substitute to pay the penalty for sin. We believe Jesus Christ physically rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and will one day physically return. We believe there will be a future physical resurrection of the dead. Only those who turn from sin and to Jesus in faith and repentance will be raised to eternal reward. Those who do not turn from sin and to Jesus will be raised to eternal punishment. We believe only through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ and repentance from sin can one be reconciled to God and experience true life and joy.
0: So like Greg said, those are things that are not negotiable. Those are basic Christian beliefs. If you think of the bullseye on a dartboard, that's the bullseye. Everybody who calls themselves a Christian has got to believe these basic things. The next things, like Greg was saying, the next five things, uh, these are what we teach. It's not necessarily what every believer is going to believe about everything we're going to say here. These are distinctives. This is what Someone needs to know that they're going to be taught these things, and they need to be prepared for that, even if they don't agree with every single bit of these next five points. Uh, So let's start here with... uh, the centrality of the gospel in the daily life of the believer. Uh, Jerry, could you read that first? Uh... I think so. You can find it. We believe
2: the gospel is an essential message that both unbelievers and believers must hear and believe. We affirm that the gospel should be continually emphasized in the believer's life. And the genuine knowledge of the gospel through faith and repentance is a central means of growth for the Christian, we affirm that the gospel rather than the law is the primary means of sanctification, transformation, and holiness in the believer's life. And by this, we do not deny the law's essential place in Scripture. It is meant to show us our need of Christ by showing us how we have fallen short of God's standards. We also believe the third use of law, whereby God's moral law is meant to guide the believer's life. We deny, however, the law is, meant, uh, is a means of uh, transformation. After the law has done its work to make us despair of saving ourselves, it wonderfully prepares our hearts for the gospel and the saving and sanctifying effect it has on our lives.
0: Scott, just to put you on the spot here, can you, can you say a word about the, uh, well, any word about that gospel center first before we move on?
3: Uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, the gospel is so essential. I, I would just say if, if you've never read Jerry Bridges, Jerry Bridges is worth reading on, on the gospel, like The Discipline of Grace, the first two chapters of that book, he's so helpful on understanding the gospel I mean, all of us need the gospel. We're also prone to drift from the gospel. Like, like Bridget would say, we'll convert somebody with the gospel and then we'll put the gospel on the shelf and we just say, now you just obey the commands of God. Well, you're, you're removing the power to obey the commands. This is the power to obey the commands is the gospel. So we just, I mean, it's like justification by faith. Uh, Sproul said a child can understand it, but it's so hard to get it in our bloodstream. Justification by faith, getting that gospel in our bloodstream, I think it just takes time, but we need to come back to it. We may think we know it, but oh man, we, we just need to come back to it again and again and again because every time we come back to it, Every time we hear it taught, the, the cross, again, it is fresh, it is powerful, it is moving, and it motivates you out to a life of obedience. So uh, we just need the gospel so, so badly in our own lives. So, yeah, we got—we want to be gospel-centered. That's
0: really good. Jerry, can you tell us a little bit about your story about coming to understand the sovereignty of God and salvation? Uh, just a little bit about that. Oh,
2: man, yeah. First time someone told me that <laughs> God chose us before the beginning of time and that God really chose us rather than, than we chose God. I love the man who told me that, and I thought... How can you be so solid in every area and so out to lunch in this one? <laughs> like how? What in the world? That's just ridiculous. Because I just came from a very man-centered, I guess, view of salvation, and uh, and then Scripture just began to work and tug on me uh, to where all of a sudden, everywhere in Scripture, God's sovereignty is in election and. And saving us and then sanctifying us just started showing up everywhere and uh, and attacked me in really a great way and so I just became fully convinced over just a few months after that and um, and, and, and becoming more convinced daily of god 's sovereignty, which doesn 't at all
0: um, get rid of human responsibility exactly
2: right human responsibility every bit as um, important growing in importance in my mind as is God's sovereignty but but I love it's a as you've put it mark it's become a really warm blanket really warm and cuddly blanket. To enjoy God's sovereignty in election. and
0: election. I, I want to be clear, not not every current member of our church would even agree with what we believe on this topic. So you don't you do not have to agree with this to be a member of our church, but you have to know that it's going to be taught a lot. <laughs> so so just be ready for that. We we believe in unconditional election that God before the foundation of the world chose who he would save in Christ apart from anything we would do or had done We, we believe in sovereign predestination that he predestined us for adoption in Christ from Ephesians 1 and that we are helpless ultimately to save ourselves or to choose Christ apart from his sovereign intervention in our life we are unashamed of that A lot of people, at first, it it can sound startling, like you said, an uncomfortable doctrine, but like you said, over time, it becomes a warm blanket. Trusting and relying on the sovereign providence of God for all things uh, is one of the most comforting doctrines in the Bible, but not all Christians begin seeing it that way, it usually takes
3: time for people to become convinced of it. Yeah, I would just say, I would just just put Jerry on the spot. I'm just so thankful for Jerry. He's taught this over and over again. Like Psalm 115, our God is in the heavens. He does what he pleases. Like I think Alan McKenzie's heard you say that hundreds of times to him. I'm just so thankful for Jerry's life and just totally believing this and how it is a warm blanket. I mean, I just think of how you just trust in God's sovereignty. Every, like since your accident like it's just been massive but I, I just think about him him and mark going up to black mountain and jerry's driving and mark is taking his life in his hands but then trusting in the sovereignty of god and as they drove up there they did fine i think your van was newer or something and then jerry like went off the road up there like ran into a tree or something like that and y'all couldn't back up could not. out of there, could not get out of there so mark's gonna have to run up there before the days of cell phones so to go get the guys to come back and like embarrass jerry but mark gets out and is running up there and Jerry said, Romans 8.28 is when he yelled to Mark, like, God's causing all things to work together for good. So it's just, I'm so thankful for your example and your teaching. <laughs> That's a true story. It is true.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is who who
3: in of- a car accident turns and says, Romans <laughs> 8,
0: that's amazing.
2: you had to run up the hill, I was just enjoying the little nap after the tree was gone. We saw the place, now there's just a fence there, no tree, just a fence, guarding the rest of the trees from my driving.
0: Jerry, would you, like, if, if a Christian said to you, like, a sincere Christian who's maybe not quite fully there on this topic, if they said... When you were 17 and you had your, your accident in football and your, your neck was you're broken, you are paralyzed, if they said Satan won a victory at that time, but God's yeah. going to come back and use it for good, how has how the sovereignty of God affected your understanding yeah, of that?
2: I just think scripturally that's not true. I mean, practically it hasn't been because it's been so good. And that's where I just think scripturally we see over and over and over how God, through The the good times, which is really all of them, according to Romans 8, 28, every (laughs) single event in the life of every single believer, God's going to use every single day for our good and for his glory. And to know that that good is not comfort or fun as much as it is holiness. And that's what God uses marriage for. That's what he uses having kids for. That's what he uses every event for our holiness to conform us to the image of Christ And so if we're in the business as believers to grow and to become more like Jesus, then that means hang on and enjoy the ride, right? Let's enjoy this. Since it's true that God's sovereign in election and he who began a good work will carry it on to completion, let's just enjoy that. That makes every single day um, enjoyable knowing that that
0: this is true. One of the great creeds of the church uh, says we believe that God ordains whatsoever comes to pass. So, he's he's Shakespeare writing the story. All the details are ultimately ultimately in God's sovereign hands. God ordains whatsoever comes to pass, yet by so doing, he is not the author of evil. So, that is the mystery of the the Bible. God predestined the crucifixion of Jesus in Acts 4, 27, and 28. He predestined what Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, the peoples of Israel, did to Jesus when they nailed him to a cross. God predestined it, yet He was not doing anything evil in that God was unstained by the evil. The the individual actors, Pilate and the others, were accountable for their own sin and were the actual actors of the evil. How those two things are both simultaneously true is a mystery. The Bible never fully explains them, but God is clearly sovereign over all things. At the same time, we are accountable for our own sin and depravity. All right, the the next one is the complementary role of men and women. So I won't read it. I'll just say we believe that men and women are made both equally equally. In the image and likeness of God. We believe men and women are equal in dignity and value and worth. But we also believe that God has assigned different roles for men and for women, and they are not interchangeable or androgynous, right? You can just switch around, whatever it is. So we believe that God this design is good. It is for our good and for human flourishing. The two most controversial areas that this shows up, as you could probably guess, are in the home and in the church. In the home, as I already mentioned earlier, God calls husbands to lovingly, graciously model Christ's crucified love for the church in the way that they love their wives. Husbands, love your wives and uh, be willing to lay your lives down for them like Christ did for his bride, the church. And so husbands should lead their wives. They should love their wives. They should be willing to sacrifice their own life for their wives and, and to provide for them in those ways. Wives are called to willingly and joyfully submit to and follow the leadership of their husbands not into sin, never into sin, but insofar as, as it, it, into righteousness they are able to do. That is certainly controversial. We believe that it reflects Christ in the church, and it is a good thing. The other, no less controversial area is in the local church. First uh, Timothy 2, Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, whether she is to be in submission, for Adam was formed first and then Eve. And uh, we believe that in the local church, God has reserved the office of elder, pastor, overseer, only for men who qualify according to the qualifications uh, and that, that uh, women are not permitted to, say, for instance, preach on a Sunday or um, uh, be an elder pastor of a church. Those are very controversial things, but we think that they are undeniably clear in the New Testament. And we think it is also for, for, for human good and flourishing. One last thing that I want to hear from you guys. Women, though, have a vital role to play in the local church. In Titus 2, older women are asked, or commanded to teach and instruct younger women in the faith, particularly as it as it comes to uh, loving their husbands and raising their children well, and those kinds of things. We're told that women uh, old, women are to to teach their children. Uh, Paul praises Timothy's mother and grandmother, Yodia and uh, no, no, uh, what uh, what are their names? Uh, I'll think of them in a second. But Paul praises the grandmother and mother of Timothy to say, you guys instructed and raised Timothy in the scriptures, and that was a good thing. Timothy's dad was not a believer.
1: Lois and Eunice.
0: Lois and Eunice, thank you. I just looked at it. No, thank you for (laughs) for looking that up. And uh, women also have a vital role. So women teaching women, women teaching children is vital. And there's also ways in which women can instruct men in an appropriate setting. We see that in Acts 18. If you remember Apollos, the... uh, Young, hotshot preacher guy. Uh, he's he's preaching. Everybody loves Apollos. But he, he was not fully instructed in the things of the gospel. So what happens? You have that couple. Uh, I'm forgetting everybody's names. Help. Priscilla and Aquila. Thank you. I can't remember the names. So the, the, Priscilla and Aquila, the husband and the wife, take him aside in private. And we're we're told that they instructed Apollos, which includes the wife. She's actually named first out of the two of them in that scene. So she clearly instructed Apollos in a private, humble way. And he took their instruction and ran with it. He, he was humbly uh... corrected and he had a better understanding of the gospel when he left that time with him so there's, a, there's absolutely a vital and appropriate way for that to happen as well but in ter- as far as preaching teaching and eldership pastoral ministry that is reserved for men who qualify according to the 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 words of first timothy three thoughts on that um, something
1: going a little little even further beneath the the surface of this issue uh... when you think about the office of elder in the church um, there's there's an office and then there's a function that goes with the office. Um, elders are to act a certain way, function a certain way, um, and they are the ones and no one else to do that. What we see in a lot of churches today on this issue of men and women is they will say only men can be pastor or elder, but because we hold to that, then we're going to break every other rule in terms of function. So as long as yep. we 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 say no women can be pastors or elders, then. Any other ministry or speaking in the church, they will say, "Well, women are going to do that," and we see that a lot. And again, I'm not trying to be overly contentious on this, but there is a function of elder that is only for men in the church, and so we can't get around that by saying, "Well, this per- this lady's not an elder, so she can still teach and preach in the church because she's not an elder." Like that—that that is undermining the very foundation of the office itself. Yeah. Um, and it, it's honestly, in my my opinion. It's, it's a manipulative, dishonest way of trying to hold to what we're saying here while doing something else. Because you want to hold to an ideal because that, that's what you should hold to, but you actually don't like the ideal, but you don't want people to just call you on it, so you're going to do something else while saying, I still hold to this. Yep. We're, as best we're able, we're going to not just hold to the office, but also to the
0: function here at North Avenue. To, to give it, I won't name names. It's not I don't want to do that right now, but I, just, I could name some names of some prominent female teachers who normally teach women, which is which is totally appropriate to Titus too but I, I can think of two very prominent female teachers who in the last two years, like one of them on a Mother's Day Sunday, the male elders of the church gave her approval to preach for like a 50-minute sermon to a room of men and women on a Sunday morning from the pulpit. That is not okay. That is direct disobedience of 1 Timothy 2, verses 11 to 15. It's direct, explicit disobedience. And and this very prominent female teacher preached. She's preached multiple times in Southern Baptist churches in the last few years. Another prominent uh, uh, female teacher uh, wrote a book criticizing some of these positions. And she just, I just saw her clip a couple weeks ago. She preached uh, mixed body. Under the leadership of male elders, she preached on a Sunday, a 50-minute sermon, expository preaching from the... That, that is not what God has called us to do. That, that, that is a disobedience of very clear paragraph of Scripture and several, several sections of
3: Scripture in that regard. Other comments on that topic? I mean, we just want to submit to the Bible. We want to go to the Word of God, and we want to submit. This is the final authority. And, and where the Bible is clear, we want to submit to the Word of God. We don't want to try to r- r- wiggle around it because of some preference in us. No, we, we come to the Bible. And that's what I love about our church. We're going to come back to the Bible. Let's talk about from the Scripture. And the Scripture, to me, is just so clear on this issue. It is so, so counterculture, though. That's why the, the culture is just pushing so hard against the church. And we want to remain faithful to the Word. Uh, the next one is believers' baptism by immersion.
0: So uh, we, we, obviously, are Baptists. We believe that after your genuine conversion... Uh, you are then to be baptized, Thomas. Can I put you on the spot here? I'm just going to mention your story. Uh, some of you all already know Thomas Bailey. Thomas had what Scott and I certainly had, which is a false conversion when we were young. How old were you when you first thought you had become a Christian? It was probably something silly like preschool or kindergarten. Life. I was kindergarten. So five-ish, somewhere around five. I was five. How old were you when you first prayed the prayer? Oh, super young. Younger than five, yeah. But well, I mean, I he, pray- beat, he beat both of us, Thomas. He beat both of us. Number three, yeah. So Scott and Overachiever. I... Overachiever. Scott lived through his teenage years as a false convert. No offense. And uh, I lived through my early teenage years as a false convert. In 2003, when I was 16, I was, I believe, by God's grace, genuinely converted. Early 2004-ish, you were genuinely converted in your early 20s. You had a similar story, and um, we both had to get rebaptized. Now, we were... It was a different story on how we were baptized because we grew up Presbyterian. But both Scott and I, after our genuine conversion... We were then baptized afterwards by immersion. Uh, You were baptized here at the church. First one, yeah. You were the first one baptized. And uh, Thomas uh, is, Lord willing, going to be baptized in April, uh, the, the, the Sunday after... Sunday after Easter, I believe, the 24th. And so Thomas was recently converted genuinely in December, right, early December, or somewhere around Thanksgiving. And uh, Thomas's life has changed dramatically in a short time by God's grace. And so we are thrilled at the opportunity of, of being able to baptize him in, a, in, a, in about a month or so from now. But we believe in baptism by immersion after genuine conversion. That, that's what we uh, believe Scripture teaches on that. All right, uh, the relationship of God's glory and man's joy... Scott, why don't you tell us a a word about the relationship of God's glory and man's joy.
3: I think this is your domain. This is is one of your big hobby horses from the early
0: days. Oh, man. You can start it off. Well, okay, we won't linger on this point, but we believe the wonderful truth that God's glory is the ultimate goal of everything. And we are called to glorify God whether we eat or drink or whatever we do. And the amazing thing is that when we are glorifying God the most, We are finding the most joy and satisfaction in God. And as John Piper has famously said, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. So that the more we drink deeply from the river of his delights and the more we are satisfied by that, the more we are honoring him for his worth and truth and beauty. The more we are satisfied, the more he is glorified. So we get the joy, God gets the glory, and we believe that these two things are not enemies. My desire to be happy, God's desire to be glorified are not enemies. We find our happiness and His glory in the same act of worshiping Him, and so this is the wonderful truth of the Christian faith. In that, Jerry, thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that I think that's true. I think it's true scripturally, and again, as you live life, I think that that you see that the more enthralled I
1: am with the Lord, the more joy is is um, in my own life. Can I? I think you've used this illustration. I know I heard John Piper use it on this. It's like picture um, the, this life, life giving, overflowing fountain. You're you're desperately thirsty. You are like dehydrated to the point of death. You 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 see this fountain. You come to this fountain. You drink from this fountain. You're revived. You're refreshed. You're given life. The way you honor that fountain is not by going and getting a bucket of water from somewhere else and going, Hey, I'm gonna help the fountain out. No, you honor the fountain by drinking from the fountain and being mm. satisfied and living by the fountain and then by trying to bring other other people along to the fountain as well. And that, that's, a, that's a good image because it's like we are constantly dependent on the Lord, um, you know, not just in a in a you know, okay, yeah, I need God, but in terms of our emotional experience, in terms of our, our whole life, like We are meant to find our everything in God. um, And when we are satisfied in Him, we honor Him by continuing to seek satisfaction in Him Mm -hmm. and then by calling others to do it with us. And so I I think that might help. And I think, like I said, you've used that before, I think that might help us, you know, get over the hump because there's some, this seems to great. Like this can be tough to get on board with at first if we're not used to hearing it. Um, But when you understand that God made us for himself, I'm quoting Augustine here, and our hearts will be restless until they find their rest in him. Um, When we find that rest in God, we keep going back to him for it. Because he's an unending source of rest, an unending source of life for his people. Um, And we honor him and glorify him
0: by finding our everything in him. I just have to add on to what you're saying, Greg. It's so good. Um, You've probably heard this before. It's also from Piper. This subject where is where no he idea. shines. My goodness, he's so good on this topic. But um, Piper talks about coming home on his anniversary to see his wife in the evening. And he's got, uh, I think they've been married 50 years now. So he's got heavy 50 roses or something. I don't know, that's a lot. He's got 50 roses behind his back. He gets to his own front door and he knocks on the door. That's a little unusual, his own front door. Knocks the door. Noel, his wife, opens the door. She's like, What are you doing? And he pulls the 50 roses out from behind his back and says, It's my duty. I'm trying to be a good husband. I read a book about being a good husband, supposed to get you flowers, happy anniversary. He said, she's not gonna smile at me if I say it's my duty. She's gonna be why don't you get out of here? Go somewhere else tonight, I don't wanna see you right now. That is not honoring. Now, duty is a great thing. We talk about duty as a huge deal in the Christian life, but if all you have is duty, you're not really honoring, are you? So he says, rewind the tape. I knock on the door, Noel opens the door, what are you doing here? He pulls out the roses and says, I, you know, go change clothes. We're going out tonight because there's nobody that would make me happier to spend the night with than you. I want to go out. I want, nothing would make me happier than to be with you. He says, not in a million years would Noel say to me, nothing makes you happier. All you think about is you. You're so selfish, slams the door. She would not say that, but why? He's talking about his own happiness. Why would she not be offended? It sounds incredibly selfish to say, nothing makes me happier than to be with you, but everybody knows When someone you respect says to you, nothing makes me happier than to be with you, they are honoring not themselves. They are honoring you in that moment. And when a husband says, nothing makes me happier than you, he is giving incredible honor to his wife. Everyone's going, wow, she must be an amazing woman because he is so happy to be with her. Well, think about knocking on the door of heaven and saying to God, I'm only here because it's my duty. I I hate reading the Bible. I hate obeying you, but I'm I'm a very dutiful person. I I keep the rules. That's not going to make the Lord smile. But if we say, Lord, I tried everything else in my life and everything else left me empty and miserable, only you can satisfy my soul. In that moment, you're not honoring yourself. The spotlight is on the goodness of God, how great he is. And yet he's getting the glory, but we are getting the satisfaction and the joy at the same time. So God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. We have four minutes before we split into groups and we've only got to cover scripture, the Trinity. We can do this. Okay. We can do this. Um, how about tackle the Trinity in, in a minute? <laughs> in
1: a minute, yeah, we can, we can do that. Um, okay, so basically, there is a mystery in a sense to what we're about to say. There is one God, and there's not more than one. There's one and only one God, the God revealed, who reveals himself in Scripture. But as he reveals himself in Scripture, he's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three divine persons, not three gods, one God, three divine persons. If it makes your brain hurt, that's okay. It makes everybody's brain hurt. But this is one of the things that sets God apart from us. He's up here, we're down here. He's creator, we're creature. We submit to this. We bless him for it. It's it's It might not make full sense because we don't have categories for that. But that's okay. Um, it's clear that the Bible says God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, each distinct persons, and yet they are one God. One God. Each is fully God. Each is truly God. One God. It is essential to our faith. We
0: cannot deny it. Uh, we must embrace it and rejoice in it. There that's great. Thank you. Thank You're you. Uh, we've got a little bit of time. Much, much of the stuff that's left we have already covered in your handout. So let's just look quickly here at what we have not covered. Man, we've covered a lot of this. Uh, we're almost done. As you guys look over these last two pages, any last thoughts? we got about three minutes on these last few topics here. Oh, let, let me say, this is important, about the Holy Spirit. We believe in the Holy Spirit, okay? We, we believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe that the Christian life is futile without the help of the Holy Spirit. We believe the Holy Spirit is a he, not an it, okay? The Holy Spirit is, is a he, not an it. And uh, we are also, so again, this is something that people do not have to agree with us on to be a member of the church. But we teach from the perspective of something called cessationism. We don't believe the Spirit has ceased. We believe that certain speech gifts and sign gifts of the Holy Spirit are no longer functioning in the church today. Those would be the gift of tongues, the gift of the interpretation of tongues, the gift of prophecy, and uh, the gift of healing. Mm -hmm. We, We believe God still can do miracles today. We don't think it's wrong to pray for God to heal someone miraculously. We think God can and still does at times heal miraculously. And there's nothing wrong about praying for it. But do people have the Benny Hinn gift of healing, walking around, making... No, no, no. We don't believe the gift of healing. If you have it, by the way, St. Mary's is right down the road. Prove it. (laughs) Just clear the hospital tonight and I will believe that you have the gift of healing. But I don't think anyone's going to be able to do that. Uh, We also... So the speech gifts... To be able to speak infallibly new prophetic words from the Lord, or new words from the gift of tongues, we believe that is new inerrant speech, and we believe that that would compromise the sufficiency of the Bible. And we have a, we have a. We did a series in the summer, you can look up on our podcast, about why we don't believe those gifts continue, but we are not denying that the Spirit is working every day in every believer, and that we desperately need the Holy Spirit's help to to even live the Christian life.
1: And in saying that, again, you don't necessarily have to agree with us on that, but we are not looking for that, we are not praying for those gifts, we are not expecting those gifts, we are not encouraging that, because we don't believe they're in operation. Um, and so again, that's just the trajectory we're going on that we're convinced Scripture leads us on. Um, and again, we're not—we don't want to like be contentious on it, but we're pretty firm on that. And that's—that's that's the direction we're going to go with that. And recognize, you know, you might have a few points of nuance, disagreement with us, and that's okay. We'd love, you know, let's sit down and chat about it sometime, just to make sure we're all on the same page in terms of what's most important and what's secondary. Because again, if the gospel central, then
0: we can disagree on this and still move forward together. Yes. All right, let let me uh, pray for us, and then we'll move to the tables, and we'll have a few minutes just to kind of briefly share our own testimony with each other and pray, and then we will be done hopefully in about 15 minutes. So let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, it is just rich to be uh, reminded of all these truths in your word. Uh, Many of them are challenging, but they're also comforting, and we know that they're all in scripture for our good and for your glory. And so I pray for all of us in this room that you would uh, make us humble before your word, that we would uh, be submissive to your word in what it commands of us, of each of us, uh, help us to be faithful. When we sin, like First John said, I am writing these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who is the propitiation, not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So God, I pray that when we do fail, that we would repent, that we would confess, that we would get back on our feet, and that we would continue down the pathway of obedience. None of us claims to be perfect. None of us claims that we have already arrived. As Paul said, not that I've already become perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So I pray now as we gather at our tables and share our testimonies that we would all be mutually encouraged by each other's faith and that this would be uh, beneficial for all